Welcome to episode 10 of Second World Problems, a world-building podcast. Good morning to exiled princes with blood on their hands, pretty men in dresses who pick swords over jewellery, angry kings, wives who wish divorce was an option, goddesses who love shiny trinkets, shepherds who are actually princes, ant-men, homosexuals who love the epic poetry, homosexuals who are in epic, who are in epic poetry, sea nymphs, spurned by Zeus, and no one fighting the Cyclops. Yeah, welcome to Second World Problems. Nice introduction, Morgan. Did great. <laughs> this week we're doing the Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller, and I am Calliope, the goddess of epic poetry. And I am a big wooden horse of Trojan origin. Love it. <laughs> Amazing. So the Song of Achilles, just to give some... Actually, we'll do the world first. So the world is... Is, is our way back times, but like mythology way back times. So like not real, like based in an era of history that never happened, but is said to have happened because it's mythology. So like is Troy real or was in Troy inside us all along? On a side note, according to the book I have, Troy was somewhere near the coast of modern Turkey, which has been supported by archaeological evidence. But like, do we really know? Or was Troy the friends we made along the way? I, know, I forgot that Troy might not be real. I just always just thought it was, and then I remember maybe not. So according to most modern or contemporary evidence, it was likely real. There was likely a fortifi- fortified city in the area that Troy is supposed to be, which is on the coast of modern Turkey. So likely it was real, but all the all the stuff, not real. Like all the stuff that surrounds it, the, like the Song of Achilles, the Iliad, which we're talking about today, that's not real. Fair enough. This this episode is going to make me want to watch Troy, isn't it? I hope not, because it's a shit movie <laughs> where they made Patroclus his cousin. I don't know. I don't remember it. I mean, it's it, it was a pretty epic movie, and Eric Banner's pretty good as Hector. It's just like, you know, it was, it was 2009 or something. They couldn't have homosexuals on the cinema. Boy, oh boy, what a time. 2009. Yep, back, way, way back, way back. We've come so far. We have, but not that far. Um, so just for some background, the Song of Achilles, and, and for you, Morgan, this will help ground you. Yay. So the song, of, <laughs> the song of Achilles is an adaption of the epic Greek poem, the Iliad, into prose narrative form. So you could consider it a YA novel, but it's definitely LGBT fiction, as Madeline Miller's adaption takes the position that Achilles and Patroclus were lovers as opposed to just friends. Um, though not all scholars agree on this interpretation, it's sort of split 50-50. But most, I would say most contemporary scholars that I've um, encountered tend to believe that they were companions in a deeper sense. So this is like fan fiction. Yeah, sort of, yeah. <laughs> but about, about mythology and that got published. Yeah. But yeah, YA fan fiction, basically. Yeah. So it's like started out as fanfic and then became its own adaptation, much like Fifty Shades of Grey. Yes, except in this case, unlike E.L. James, Madeline Miller has many degrees in the area that she's writing about. Yes, that that's probably a, a better place to start off at. Yeah. So the basic plot of the Iliad, um, and therefore some of what makes up the Song of Achilles. So the Iliad covers the final year of the Trojan War, where Greece is fighting Troy over the adduction of Helen of Sparta by Paris, Prince of Troy. Um, it concerns primarily the anger of Achilles towards Agamem- Agamemnon, the leader of the Greeks, his grief over, spoilers, Patroclus's death, and the death of Hector, who is um, the prince, first 
Prince of Troy, basically, first in line to the throne. There are other stories about Achilles that are not covered in the Iliad, which provide the details of his birth, childhood, combat, and death. Um, And it's from those stories that the Song of Achilles also interprets um, its whole arc, because it's it's basically the story of Achilles' and Patroclus' life from childhood when they meet to when they're both dead. Spoiler alert, if you don't know much about Greek mythology, they both die. Um, it's a tragic story, as many Greek stories are. They're generally tragedies, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. They either die or are cursed or something. Yeah, mortal lovers, and especially like mortal lovers and, the, and heroes in general in Greek mythology, they don't make it to happily ever after most of the time. Usually the only way to become happy or at least to survive is to uh, to be raised in some form of divinity by the gods which doesn't happen here unfortunately so hercules for instance um becomes is raised to godhood eventually so despite all the tragedy in his life he eventually ascends to olympus so it does doesn't matter that you know his own wife poisoned him with a cloak (laughs) but he and also he committed atrocities who knows so outside of like the iliad achilles who is our main character i suppose is most known for the story of how his mother Thetis was compelled by Zeus to marry a mortal because a prophecy said that her son would be greater in power than his father. And Zeus was like, well, she can't marry me. One person I cannot sleep with is is Thetis because can't risk that because I'm I'm king of the gods. There's no way. I bet he hated that. He was like, oh, the the one person I can't sleep with. God damn it. Yep, and then he was like, okay, we're going to marry you to a mortal, which she hated because she was semi-divine. She was a nerd, so she was the daughter. She was a ocean spirit, um, daughter of Oceanus or one of one of the kings of the ocean. So she was semi-divine. So she was like, mortals are way beneath me. Fuck those mortals. And then he was like, no, you're marrying one. Anyway, so then after she marries, after she's forced to marry a mortal, she then seeks to make her son Achilles immortal by gripping him by the heels in either over a fire or dipping him in the river Styx. Those are the two most common interpretations of how she does it, but leaves on points of vulnerability where she gripped his heels, and hence we get the name Achilles' heel, because it's his one weak spot. It's his one weak spot, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Um, should have thought about that. Yep. Yeah, very much a, uh, what's the word? Oversight. <laughs> Yeah, oversight, but also like, you know, of course he has one weak spot and of course that's going to come up later and end up being his downfall. Yeah, I mean, well, even the Death Star had a weak point, so, you know, can't the avoid Death it. The Death Star had one very glaring weak point, like who designed that thing? Yeah. Achilles, though, like, like you could go your whole life and like never, and with a with a mortal ankle and be immortal and be fine. Yeah. It's just unfortunate. I wouldn't be telling anyone, though. Like, no one needs to know that. Like, all he would need to do is put, like, a bracer or something around his ankle. Yeah, just wear armor, ankle armor. (laughs) He could could be the first person to popularize ankle armor. Yeah. But unfortunately, that's not what happens. So um, we're also going to try a bit of a new format in which we just sort of, I'm not going to tell you the categories. We're just going to sort of work through it in a sort of free form sort of version and see if that works better. So fresh. I've also included less notes for myself, so I have to rely on my memory. (laughs) So we'll see how it goes. (laughs) A lot of faith in yourself. Let's do it. I don't have a lot of my faith in myself, but we're going to do it anyway. (laughs) All right. So um, like the song of Achilles, the reason why I've chosen it is that it's a very beautiful, lyrically written novel 
and it has a lot of obvious knowledge about mythology and the history that goes into the writing of it. So, like, when you read it, you really f- you have complete confidence that the author knows exactly what she's talking about, even though you also know that it's an interpretation of a myth and therefore it's going to it's going to ch- pick and choose certain moments according to what the author favors. But it's it's a really beautifully written novel. Like it's it's so enjoyable. It's like a, it's a delight to read. So I that's why I picked it. And also we've been doing a lot of fantasy, so I thought we just sidestep to the left and do mythology instead. What are those categories? You got fantasy, mythology, real life. I mean, is that the is that the three the three? Probably, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we could we could basically do anything. It's just, you know, when it comes to books, I was looking at my shelf and I was like, huh, Song of Achilles, that seems like a good option. So that's what we're doing. Sounds great. Because it was about time we did we did a book because we've done some movies and some TV and some games, but it's been a while since we did a book. So Look, we just... We're, if we're anything, we're diverse. We are. We're across we're trying... it all. Okay. So as we said, it's not an original story and it's not original characters, but because she's turning it into fiction specifically a novel specifically in certain genres it isn't an original exploration of them it's not like just a it's not just like another translation of the Iliad she's narrativizing the poem um into like a into a story so that's why it's interesting also in the sense that no one else could have written this book the way that it is because no one else is Madeline Miller. So no one else is going to have the same interpretation as her. Yeah. And like poems are very, uh, like there's a lot of detail to fill in in between poems. Like they're very broad strokes. They're not mm. super in depth. So I feel like you got to be, you got to be around the topic. You got to know what you're yeah. talking about. And especially because she's not just taking from the Iliad, she's taking from stories that come up in other places from other writers um, who may have been operating later than Homer and things like that about, you know, his childhood and things like that. So she's taking from a lot of different sources and you really have to be across those sources to decide what's worth using. So there is a huge canon of Greek mythology that this story is adapting and interpreting and also surrounded by. So while this story is very satisfying and has closure to it, so like it is contained when you read it, it is like it has a satisfying ending. You don't you're not really looking necessarily for more, but there is so much surrounding it that points to more. So like, even if the story's done, you can always go back and read the Iliad or you can read the Odyssey or you can just get into various aspects of Greek mythology um, or Greek culture, if that's what you're interested in. So like, even though the book itself is contained, um, there's certainly more that surrounds it. If like, so in that way, I would say it's quite, textually rich like there's not it doesn't just it doesn't it isn't just the book like there's more art that that's coming away from it if you need to step outside the book there's so much more it's got more world building in it yes exactly that's the thing well that's the thing the world of the novel is contained but also it's not because it's the it it's framed within this mythological canon and there's way more in that canon than ever makes it into the book, but you would have to you would have to go looking for that as opposed to it being within within like for instance a series that you could then read more of. So it's a singular book, but there is there is more to explore outside of it. Um, there are also a lot more books in this area that highlight different experiences within this canon. 
which I've included in my recommend recommendation recommendations. That will give you, if you're interested in stepping outside the book, that'll give you some jumping off points for things which are interesting. In terms of consistency in the world building, um, Greek myths are not necessarily good at being consistent because they didn't need to be because they they function within a mythological canon. So, like, they're not – you could have multiple origin stories for different gods. You could have multiple interpretations because they're not – they're not like confined to a world building structure they're combined with combined within like a, a view a certain viewpoint of the world and like how the world functions and why it functions that way which can have lots of interpretations you know why do we get lightning storms why do we have fire you know how did the gods become gods you know there's lots of interpretations of stories that that could happen and like across different cultures as they connected stories would then mix and join together and gods would become more like other gods and less like what they were originally so there's really there's consistency isn't something that you can really define a myth by the same sort of goes with the Iliad is that it's not necessarily a consistent story until it was written down and as an oral tale poets would have tossed in the bits they liked and skipped the bits they didn't and potentially added new details that they'd heard in the tavern that were really cool more scandalous or worked in you know popular claims of like the history of the town because often um places would choose heroes to be you know their their founders so they work they might work in that this that that hero came from this place that I'm currently in give me more tips you know yeah consistency isn't really something that you get within myths or then the poetry that comes out of them but there's many different versions of the same story and there are things which are just not clear that just haven't haven't been resolved from the years that they've been passed down, which scholars still fight over. You know, were Achilles and Patroclus just best buds or were they lovers? We don't know. And we and we might never know. We probably won't. Probably but and, and that's up to, so there's there's stuff that's up to you. In that case because of that, the consistency in this novel mostly comes down to the interpretation of events. So like do the events follow the pattern that's been set down in the oral poem aside from in the written down Iliad? aside from the bits that the Iliad doesn't cover, um, does it conform to like an expected interpretation of events? The consistency of the characters to their mythical counterparts, do they match what, what we know of them from the text that we might be already familiar with? Um, and then obviously confidence on the part of, part of the author of their understanding of time and place. So Madeline Miller, see, like she's, convince me that she's got this across her book Song of Achilles and then her second one Circe she knows her stuff so that's not really something we have to worry about as much with consistency and and that function then that rolls over into the other two things like her interpretation of events and her consistency in characters because she knows what she's doing there isn't going to be much disconnect there all right so the story the novel is set in mythic Greece set sometime around the 13th century BCE. In our real world, this would have been Bronze Age Greece, known as the Mycenaean era, which begins around the 11th century and is also called the Age of Heroes because it is the source of the mythological heroes and epics like Hercules, the Iliad, and the Odyssey. So even though, even though these heroes didn't exist, um, they are always attributed to the Mycenaean era, even though they weren't real, they weren't really there, but like, 
that's that's where they're like said to come from. They just came from this time. Yeah. So this is when, like, that the Mycenaean era is when all the like most of the he- heroic deed stories of of the Greek canon are set. Even though the Mycenaean era was not like the age of heroes in actuality, that's just. But that's where all these mythic stories are set. So it's 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 sort of weird. Um, the main settings um, in the novel are Pythia, which is Achilles' home. Also, I apologize for any pronunciations that are bad. Um, Mount Pelion, which is the home of Chiron the Centaur, mentor to Greek heroes. There's Skyros, an island which belongs to the royal family of Lycomedes. Um, Achilles is most commonly disguised as one of Princess Diadema's women in this section. He goes to the island to avoid getting drafted into into the war. What a hero. Has to dress as a woman. Avoid in the draft. And then... <laughs> And then obviously there's Troy, which is a heavily walled and fortified city, which withstands the Greek assault for 10 years. Um, In Greek mythology, the walls were so impressive that they were said to have been built by Poseidon and Apollo, who after an act of impiety were compelled by Zeus to serve the Trojan king Laomedon for one year. And King Laomedon was the father of Priam, who was the king during the time of the Iliad. So his father, Um, I'm pretty sure. So the, there are certain things about this that the novel, certain rules that the novel has to adhere to because of its chosen genre and operating in Greek mythology, those being that gods and goddesses are real and have thoughts and feelings and dealings concerning humankind, so they're not ambivalent, they get involved, often for the worse. The age of heroes, most stories that are told about heroes um, from Greek mythology take the stance of the age of heroes is over but this is what it was like so we no longer have we no longer have heroes but here's what they were as opposed to positing like in any way that they were real or could come back war and martial prowess are valued in the world but also commented on because obviously it's the Trojan War um, and lots of Greek heroes are famed for their skills in battle but because this is a contemporary novel with contemporary values, it's also commenting on, you know, the the tragedy of war and all the terrible things that happen as part of it. War bad. War is bad. So prophecies and fate play a role as they do in many mythologies. So part of the conceit of this is that prophecies are real and they are believed by the people who hear them unless they are given by Cassandra, uh, who has never been believed because fuck Apollo. All right. Kindness, friendship, and love are only valuable in the personal aspect. So that ties into the war and martial prowess thing. Um, So glory, fame, and immortality in myth are more valuable than anything else. So although although this is a story, like in many ways a love story for Achilles and Patroclus, those aspects are not valued by anyone in their society to the extent that it's valued by them. So society forces in some ways a, a disconnect between the personal and then the public. You have to see, like, kindness and friendship and love are great, but only within your own house. Once you step outside the house, you're fighting for your country, you're fighting for glory, you're fighting for your own your own fame and your chance at immortality. So kindness, friendship and love are not valuable to the outside world. They, you know, I suppose in some ways it's like they won't keep you warm at night, they won't get you gold. So 
those are sort of the rules that the the novel is op- the store like the world of the novel is operating on. Makes sense. Yeah. So um, as we've already discussed, the main characters are Achilles and Patroclus. There are a lot of supporting characters among the gods and mortals, but the story is really about them more than anything else. It is their story. So, like, even though Odysseus is there, even though Agamemnon is there, even though Paris is there, they're not important to the story in the same way because it's the story of, it's literally about Achilles and Patroclus and their experience. Um, and, and in some ways what this war does to them. So I've given a special men- mention to Thetis, though. She plays a much bigger role than is usually assigned to her. She's usually just, like, talked about in asides oh, Thetis came to see me. But she gets a much bigger role in this. In fact, she's the main god that you see throughout. Like, the gods really don't have a big role because it's it's all told from, like, basically a singular point of view. So even though, even maybe if Thetis is off screen more, even in this book, more than not, she's still the main connection to divinity within it. So you don't really see the other gods. You don't hear about them. But she comes up multiple times usually to be a bit of a downer, but, you know, she's there. So that's kind of cool that she gets a bigger role. So now we're going into, like, a little bit of the structure of hero mythology. So um, according to Lisa Morizzo, um, whether described as warriors, athletes, healers, prophets, founders of cities or colonies, lawgivers, generals, politicians, or philanthropists, those described by the Greeks, by the Greeks as heroes, generally exhibit five traits, or you know, three of five. Some have all five, some have slightly less, but they usually have enough of these fives, and that will, that's what makes them classified as a hero to the Greeks. So, number one, they are dead. Good start. Yep. Whether they considered mortals, demigods, or linked to a god through birth, talent, beauty, deeds, or favoritism. They retain the understanding of human mortality and are worshipped at gravesites. So even, for instance, Hercules, who is said, often said to have achieved divinity and joined Olympus, there's sort of this idea that it were, his divine half is the one that ascends while his mortal half dies when he dies and goes goes to the underworld because it is a, it is a quintessential part of heroes in Greek mythology is that they are dead, that they die. They also perform extraordinary deeds, which do not need to be moral, so they don't have to be good. So they they basically just have to perform deeds, deeds which exceed those of other men, both good and bad, um, for better or worse. It, it moral morality doesn't really come into it in a way that you would expect um, for our conception of heroes today. They don't have to be. They don't have to have stellar moral compasses. They just have to outperform. Uh, every other mortal they're just gonna be good at everything well they have to be or they could be really good at one thing even if that thing is murder you know like (laughs) man he killed so many people what a hero yeah i mean yeah some myths are like that i mean i I mean i guess if you're killing the right people it's like you could kill millions of people but if they're on the other side yeah man look at that hero and like greek heroes do often kill a lot of people um it's just that it depends on who they are so they also generally die premature, prematurely, violently, or mysteriously. So, like, for instance, this is highlighted in the book when Achilles asks Patroclus, he goes, name one hero who is happy and Patroclus, Patroclus thinks, and he's like, I can't. And he's like, 
that's because there aren't any, but I'm going to be the first. Spoilers, he's not. But, like, that's sort of the quintessential part of the hero is that they they live short, very extreme lives, and then they die. And they usually don't, like, there, there's no growing old and dying, you know, growing old, dying happy, surrounded by your kids for heroes. They die young, and usually, um, even if they reach the heights of glory they don't necessarily have the things that we would consider um the things that we contemporary people would consider what you need to make you happy you know close friendships you know re- ex- um interpersonal relationships a community steady job that's not for them they're they're live fast die young characters yeah they are worshipped at grave sites um so they are believed to be as powerful and dangerous in death as they were in life, so shrines are erected to appease the anger of dead heroes and harness the potency of their spirit and goodwill. So basically the idea is that if you erect a shrine and worship at it, you can like uh, get hold of the vitality of that, of the spirit of the hero of when they were alive. So, you know, all that all that blaze that they had, you can sort of urge that into your community sort of if you build a shrine and worship at it whereas if you don't you know I don't know they'll cause an earthquake or something like the idea is that they're still their spirit is still as powerful even in death just because they're dead doesn't mean they're not going to stop fucking with you and being shit correct um hero is also a tame of a form of immortality so this is like the fifth trait of a hero is that they attain a form of Im- immortality through song and cult. So heroes are often celebrated through poetry and songs of their deeds, as well as through community actions such as shrine rem- remembrance and festivals. So yeah, part of the the category of being a hero is not only that you <laughs> not only that you are dead, that you died prematurely, and that you, you know, you performed extraordinary deeds while alive. It's also that you are then remembered for those deeds and poetry and songs are written about you. <laughs> yeah, so that's what you need to be a hero in ancient Greek society. Good luck achieving that, Morgan. I assume you're going to start your quest today to be immortalized as a hero. Yeah, you've laid out a very, uh, a very, a step-by-step guide on which to follow and it seems achievable. A good roadmap for you. Yeah, I, of course, would have liked to start younger, but, you know, I'll, I can play catch-up. <laughs> Um, so the society presented in the Song of Achilles and its leaders values more than love, peace, and family, which I, I suppose in in this is more traditionally associated with the Trojan side since Priam has many children and did not seek war with Greece. So that so love, peace, and family, which is a core exploration in the novel, is not valued by the side that Achilles and Patroclus are on. The Greeks in the novel tend to value honour, property, war, and its spoils, glory, victory, and immortality. So, for example, in the Iliad, Achilles sacks no less than 23 cities in the surrounding area of Troy, um, and then in all versions gets in a tiff with Agamemnon over who gets which slave and then refuses to fight, leading to the deaths of many Greeks um, until Patroclus leads his men into battle on his behalf and then tragically dies so you know it's sort of a caution I mean Achilles stories was always a caution against hubris but also it's a caution against like public hubris like like not minding your community as like as well as you mind your own honor your own 
glory, your own stuff. Um, and it, yeah, it's a caution that, you know, love, peace and family will not, well, they won't necessarily get you immortality in ancient Greek myth. You know, you have to think about what, what is the price of immortality if that's the case. Cool. You're with me? Yeah, yeah. You're vibing? Vibing. Love immortality. People don't like immortality, but I'm about it. Sure. Um, okay. Let's put it this way, considering that it's completely against the point I just tried to make. Okay. Um, if the price of your immortality is your is the chance at love, peace, and family, you're willing to let that all but go. But like, if you already had that, and then it's like, all right, cool. Um, I've done that. I've done this. Uh, this was great. Let's now go be immortal and just keep doing it. Okay. So I suppose. I suppose you're talking about a different type of immortality then. So, like, for instance, like, if one day, like, if you said lived a great life and you had love, peace, and family, and then a vampire was like, you want to be a vampire? And you're like, yep, that's a different type of immortality. Immortality in, in the Greek mythic structure comes at the cost of war. Yeah. So it comes at the cost of glory and murder and riches and stuff so yeah, like, like look it, it, i'll be honest it sounds like a lot of work and i'm not about yeah, it it's it is a it is the a vampire lot of option is definitely more attractive to me yeah it is a lot of work and it's a lot of um i mean it's a lot of negligence for the people you're fighting against like as i said achilles sacks 23 cities in the surrounding area of troy and takes takes their people as slaves and burns their livestock and burns their city down but and it's like well, <laughs> hero but still died. <laughs> so like <laughs> that darn ankle, it'll get you every time. So the Mycenaean civilization that this uh, that this age of heroes is based on flourished in the late Bronze Age, so it reached its peak around the 15th to 13th century BCE. Um, and its eventual reason for decline is not confirmed. Um, we don't know why. It could have been natural disasters. It could have been an invading army. It could be anything. Um, but it, it eventually... Could have been some guy going around sacking all their cities. Yeah, it could have been some guy. The Mycenaeans were named after, after their chief city of Mycenae in the Argolid of the northeast of the Peloponnese, um, which basically is just like a city in Greece, <laughs> if that makes it easier to picture. I'm picturing some of it. I'm just picturing the map in Assassin's Creed Odyssey. Yeah, and I'm that's like... Also... <laughs> That's what, also, that's what I'm also picturing. <laughs> um, so the Mycenaeans came to dem- dominate most of mainland Greece and several islands, extending trade relations to other Bronze Age cultures. Common Mycenaean export included pottery, olive oil, perfumed oil, and wine, um, while its most likely imported items were things like gold, ivory, copper, and glass. Um, major Mycenaean centres included Mycenae, which is the tr- traditional home of Agamemnon in the Iliad, Terrans, Pylos, which is the traditional home of Nestor, also from the Iliad, Thebes, um, Medea, Gla. Sorry about Gla. the pronunciation. <laughs> pronunciation on that. That's what I have written down. Um, Orchomenos, Argos, Sparta, and Nicorea, and potentially Athens as well, but um, that's not as easily confirmed as the others. Um, and then the culture made a lasting impression on later Greeks um, in the archaic and classical periods. Because of they set because they and we know that because they set all their myths in the Bronze Age, they're all Bronze Age heroes, and it was considered the Golden Age of Greek heroes. So this time period, don't know why they chose this particular time period, this particular culture to set 
all their heroic stories in, but that's the one they cho- chose. I, it was potentially because it it might have been a very might have been a very warlike culture. It might have been that they were quite a rich culture and that they you know might have had lots of wealth. It, it could be anything. Similarly, a conflict between the Mycenaeans and the Hittites may have occurred in this time period, but it if if it did, its represent, representation in epic literature, such as the Iliad, is way more myth than reality, um, not not likely to be on an epic scale at all. The Hittites, if you're wondering, are the people who occupied the area near Turkey where Troy was slash is. Um, so those two cultures may have clashed in real life, but if they did, you know, it wasn't what 10 years long that is a long time <laughs> with like several sons of zeus and achilles and odysseus favored by athena it wasn't that if if it really did happen that wasn't what it was so the trojan war in the iliad started as a way for zeus to reduce the ever-increasing population of humanity um, and more practically as an expedition to reclaim Hel- Helen, wife of Menelaus, king of Sparta and brother of Agamemnon. So like it was it was all sort of planned to to go down this way because the earth was getting overpopulated and Zeus was like, gonna have to start another war. Yeah, that's that's an interesting take. He's like, oh, the earth's getting mighty mighty filled up. What am I gonna do? That Helen, we should probably go get her, right? All right, let's do it. So and that like solves story, all our problems. The story has a couple of different beginnings. Like you can always go sort of further back or further out and find a different story that works itself in. But I I do think that there's an interpretation where like the gods are all just sitting around all this going like, huh, there's lots of men on that earth again. What are we gonna do? And they're like, oh, they're like, oh, Poseidon's like, oh, I can do an earthquake, and he's and just like, not not gonna kill enough people, my man, and like. Someone's like, oh, what about a plague? And Apollo's like, I did the work last time. I'm not going to do it this time. And then Zeus is like, and Ares are like, what? War it is. <laughs> so just and like, so we shall go to war. <laughs> so as I said, the chronology of the myth has multiple beginnings. So, for instance, uh, most of the time it, it would be, most people start it with Eris, the goddess of strife, discord, contention, and rivalry. She's also more specifically the strife of war, so haunting the battlefield and delighting in human bloodshed. Sounds like a stand-up girl. Um, which is also an epic poem um, from slightly later than Homer's Iliad, um, details the genealogies of the gods. Of course, it is according to him, as many gods have multiple origin stories. So Hesiod's Theogony lists Eris as being born of night and then lists her own children. So he says... Destructive night also bore retribution, a bane for mortal men. Then she bore deceit and passion and destructive old age and mighty-hearted strife. But hateful strife bore painful toil and forgetfulness and famine and tearful sorrows and discord and battles and murders and homicides and dissension and lies and arguments and disputes and quarrels and ruin. Bosom companions these two. An oath who causes pain the most for men on earth whenever someone, someone of them willingly swears falsely. So, really? <laughs> We'd be having a good life if it weren't for her. Yeah, she brings in a lot of issues. Also, that person just like got, couldn't think of anything and just pulled out a thesaurus and wrote like the same thing in different words towards the end there. 
yeah, arguments, disputes, quarrels. <laughs> well, yeah, just murders and homicides and dissension and lies and arguments and disputes. <laughs> it's like, what's the difference between murder and homicide <laughs> and an argument and a dispute and a quarrel? Maybe it's the intensity. I don't know. But yeah, she basically, in in Greek ancient Greek mythology, she is the reason for that all these things come into the world. Um, and there is one one interpretation that she is also one of the things that Pandora lets out of the jar um, when she opens the jar in her story. What? You say jar, what most people know it as a box. Yeah, well, it's ancient Greek. They, they don't really, boxes were not really okay. <laughs> they most likely had jars. <laughs> Logic. Yeah, like boxes, not, not very much a now thing. We keep things in boxes. Back then they kept things in Jars. See, that's dangerous. Like, if I'm going to store all the evil in the world, I'm going to store it in a sturdy box, not a breakable jar. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's fair. But, I mean, it didn't either way. The, Look, the myth goes on. She still opens the box. Yeah, it doesn't matter. She, either way, they, it gets into the world. Yeah. So, most most versions of the Iliad, not of the Iliad, but of the story of the Trojan War, if you're going back, way back to the start, start with Eris and her apple or her ball, um, and the fact that she's uninvited to a wedding. Whose wedding was it? Why did she have an apple and a ball? Well, I'll tell you. So it was the wedding of Peleus and Thetis, Achilles' mum and father. Why was she not invited? Because of the list I just read you. <laughs> no one wants that at a wedding. No one wants murders and homicides yeah, and like, and lies and arguments. It's like, oh, we're planning an event. It's going to be a splendor, a splendorous event. Uh, splendid event. I don't know, one of those words. And yeah. it's like, oh, let's invite, like, uh, we'll invite um, the god of romance. Sure, we'll invite the god of music. Yep, well, all the gods. And then it's like, oh, should we invite Eris? It's like, well, yeah, Eris is all right. But, like, if Eris comes, then famine has to come. And then, like, <laughs> quarrels and ruin have, like, like... <laughs> We're not just inviting Eris. She has multiple plus ones. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I was like, and we don't want to invite, you know, her son Oaths, because you know, people, those men, they just they make oaths and then they break them, and then <laughs> you know, shit happens. But obviously, it's all, all planned. So, like, obviously, they're meant to not invite her. Um, and also, you don't really want to want you don't really want to invite a goddess who, who gave birth to things like arguments and disputes to the wedding of a mortal and a demigoddess who doesn't want to marry the mortal because that could go really badly. Yeah, it could. So, and why is the wedding happening? Because everything, as with everything in Greek mythology, because of Zeus. So Zeus couldn't marry Thetis because she was going to give birth to a son who's going to be greater than his father. So she's, so he's like, marry her off to that mortal who was Peleus, Achilles' father. So they're having a wedding and they haven't invited Eris. And Eris is like, fuck you guys. Where's my invite? She sort of shows up, um, not quite Maleficent style, um, because Maleficent, rocks up and is like, why didn't you invite me? Eris is just like, I have this very shiny apple or ball. It depends on the story you're reading, whether it's an apple or a ball. But either way, it's a round, shiny, golden thing. She's like, I've got this lovely thing and I'm just going to toss it over there and run away and see what, and just watch what happens. See what happens. So she tosses it and she runs away and who should it roll in front of? But Athena, Hera and Aphrodite. And they're all like, love that ball. Going to pick that up. And then one of them picks it up, and the other one's like, no, that's my ball. And the other one's like, actually, it's mine. And they, like, start arguing over this ball. 
And Eris is away, like, cackling, like, ha, 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 I've ruined the wedding. <laughs> with, ruined a the we- with a bowl. With a bowl. And she's also inscribed it, um, as the classic story goes, to the fairest. So they're all like, but I'm the fairest, so it's mine. And she's just like, ha, 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 ha. And Thetis is like, thank God this wedding is over. It just sounds like, like, like it's a, I'm just imagining a wedding that, and no one wants to be there except yeah. Zeus who's just going around like, hey, everyone having a good time. Yeah. 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 So yeah, that is just like, I think that's the intentions of me. I'm gonna dive back into the sea now. Ta-da. Um anyway, so they're all fighting. And then we get to the basically an an intersection with the story of Paris. Because what they do is they say, Well, we can't judge this. We just keep fighting. I think it's Zeus who's like, Well, of course it's Zeus, because he's organizing this whole thing. And he's like, No, no, we couldn't possibly decide. We'll pick someone else. Um, go ask this guy, Paris. Now, Paris was, who is a pro, prince of Troy? Leonard Bloom, yes. He was, yeah, he was supposed to be noble. He's basically the first, he's a, he's a very original rags to riches and then abduction and then war story. Classic tale. Classic tale. Um, very Cinderella. He, he was born to Priam and his queen Hecuba, um, their youngest son, I believe, and they then basically get a prophecy shortly after he's born that if he stays in Troy, or basically if he lives um, at all, he's going to bring destruction to the city, you know? And, and they're like, oh, fuck, we've got to kill our son. We don't want to do that. So they're like, they give him to a shepherd, and the shepherd's supposed to take him out and kill him in the mountains. He, but he holds the baby, and he's like, oh, I can't kill you. I'll just put you down on this mountain here. And walk away and hope for the best. Because I can't do it myself, but maybe the, maybe the world will do it for maybe me. Maybe the mountain will take care of it. <laughs> anyway, so he walks away, but Paris survives. Um, and then he is taken in either by that shepherd or by a separate shepherd who finds him. Um, and raised as a shepherd until eventually it is... And he basically marries a nymph at that time as well. Because, you know, it's bigamy for everyone. And then he finds out he's a prince of Troy and he goes back and they're like, I don't know, maybe they've forgotten about the prophecy, but they they welcome him back and they're like, well, you know. They're like, well, you lived and nothing happened. So. Yeah, so Troy's still standing, so I think I think we're good. But then Athena, Aphrodite, and Hera come to him and be like, judge who deserves this lovely golden ball. And he's like, and they all offer him different things, try to bribe him, like, He's like, oh, I can't possibly pick. And then Hera's like, if you pick me, I'll make you king of, like, two continents or whatever. Two kingdoms. Well, they're all Not bad, not bad. And Athena's like, if you pick me, I will make you victorious in every battle. I'll make you wise, you know, all, all her sort of area. Yeah, tempting. And then Aphrodite. Also, they all get naked in some versions. Like, they strip first. And he's still like, no, I couldn't possibly pick. Oh, you're all so beautiful. But don't put your clothes back on. Paris is just having a bad day, isn't he? What a terrible time. <laughs> yeah, what what a bad day with the goddesses. Um, and then Aphrodite is like, if you pick me, I'll give you the most beautiful woman on the earth to be your wife. And he's like, that one, here's your ball. That's a, not the one I would have picked, but you know. Of course, she neglects to mention, and Paris doesn't really care, that the most beautiful woman of it, on earth is Helen of Sparta and she's married to someone else. Belongs to another man. Yep. So they then basically go to Sparta on a diplomatic mission. And then 
Paris steals Helen and goes back. And, you know, the agency of Helen is often disputed. Like, did she go willingly? Was she under a spell by Aphrodite? No one really knows. Yeah, like, what did, at this point, like, what did Aphrodite do at this point? It's like, I would give you the most beautiful woman. She got the ball and went, well, uh, uh, I'll just tell you who she is and then you can deal with the rest. Like, didn't, it's like, I will give it to you. And then in the end, I was like, well, I'll just tell you who it is and then you can, like, deal with that. Yeah. <laughs> I've got the ball now. Here's the beautiful yeah. woman. Go deal with that. Yeah, her name's Helen. She lives in Sparta. Go have fun. <laughs> Go start a war. Yeah, so he takes her back to Troy and then Menelaus is rightfully angry because his wife's been abducted by a random prince and taken away um, and they start a war. And, and you know, they probably could have been, the war probably, like, I mean, obviously it's a story, but, like, the idea is that sort of greed got involved and, Agamemnon's like, well, Troy's really rich, so if we go to war against them we can, and we win, we can take all their riches, um, and then we'll be even richer. Delightful. So, like, there's, you know, it's not a straightforward story, but, of course, like, the idea is that the gods seeded the idea, like, the, the potential in men for go to war and kill each other, and therefore the gods don't really have to interfere that much in actually creating the war. They just have to sprinkle a few ideas onto us and then we go and do our thing. Yeah, it's not, it's like, oh, we've got to make the humans go to war. It's like, oh, actually, that's not really that hard. Let's just, yeah, done in a day. Yeah. And relax. Yeah. So the Song of Achilles is slightly different um, to the mythic origins in that because it begins with Patroclus, because the book is told from his point of view and also because it's his and Achilles' stories, it doesn't start with the gods. It starts with Patroclus and his childhood um, because this story doesn't belong to the gods in the same way that most interpretations of the Trojan War myth does. You know, it, it's very, the myth, the myth backgrounds it, but the story itself is very much concerned with the humanity of Patroclus and then the not quite enough, not near enough divinity of Achilles. Like he, the, like Patroclus is, you know, he's, he's, he'll often interpret, interpret, interpreted as you know a healer and like a good friend and like a good man the best of they call him the best like originally the idea is that Achilles is nicknamed the best of the Greeks but you know then Achilles is like like and I think Briseis also says says it at some point like Achilles wasn't the best of the Greeks Patroclus was because he was a good man how good he was when he participates in this war is you know I mean it was expected at the time that you would go to war and you would participate. But, you know, I'm not sure that going to war and participating in the Trojan War makes you a good man. I don't know. Maybe maybe he was just like, he was like, oh, I got to go to war. But like, just like in the battlefield, just pretending to fight. Maybe. Just being like, oh, I, I, yeah. And then just running away. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the story is concerned with that idea, like that Patroclus is a very human element, but like the best of the human element in this very bad time. And then Achilles is both the best and worst of, you know, the divine element. He's not quite, not quite divine enough to survive, not quite divine enough to reach immortality in his own life does require his death to reach that but also that he embodies like you know the like hubris and rage and like all the bad things about both humans and gods so it's it's 
it's an interesting take on the story. Um, and the first line of the book is, my father was a king and the son of, son of kings. So it starts with the human element. And that could describe Patroclus or Achilles, even though it specifically is Patroclus. So, like, it's not concerned with the machinations of the gods, but rather how Achilles and Patroclus are manoeuvred by the forces around them to fulfill, you know, the, the roles that are set out for them in society. And, and how they try to break free of those in order to be together. So um, as in the Iliad, the Song of Achilles covers Patroclus's death and Achilles's own, plus some of the end of the war, as well as a brief epilogue in which Achilles is, not Achilles, Patroclus is finally reunited with Achilles in the underworld after being denied it. So even though Patroclus dies in the later chapters of the book, uh, the chapters are still from Patroclus' point of view as he lingers as a spirit. And, he, the, uh, and the, yeah, the last few chapters are actually quite sad because it's revealed that he lingers as a spirit for quite a long time because he is denied uh, his name written on the monument that he shares. So basically Achilles in both the Iliad and the Song of Achilles orders that when he dies, his ashes and Patrick's ashes be mixed together so they can be together in, in the afterlife. While that happens in the Song of Achilles, Achilles' son, Neoptolemus, uh, says, no, the monument I'm building, building to Achilles is for my dad. He would never have a commoner, even though Achilles, even though Patroclus was a prince, he was just a prince in exile, uh, be his friend, friend in inverted commas. So he denies Patroclus's name being written on the monument, so he has to actually stay where his ashes are buried. He can't journey onwards because he hasn't been remembered, um, which sucks. is one of the key key elements of the Greek afterlife in this time. But then um, Thetis eventually visits the monument and Patroclus tells the story of the two of them and Thetis then writes his name on the monument and they can be together. It's very nice. Oh, yay. So even though it does... Happy ending-ish? Sort of, yeah. I mean, we'll talk about a bit more in worldview and philosophy. But, yeah, it does sort of give you the happiest ending for a story that was always going to end in tragedy. So we've talked a bit about the mythological roots and now we've talked about a bit about the death of the characters. So what's interesting is the device that Patroclus can continue to tell the story even after his death because he lingers as a spirit. So in Greek myth, the continued existence of the dead depended on their constant remembrance by the living. Um, so the land of the dead is known as Hades which might get confusing because its rule is also known as Hades. But uh, the ruler Hades that we know is, while he is ruler, like god of the dead and ruler of the land of the dead, he is not death itself in Greek canon. So in Greek canon, death itself is known as Thanatos, um, and he is the god of non-violent death and was often related to Hypnos, which is the personification or god of sleep. In terms of violent death, the Caries are the personification of female spirits of violent death, including death in battle by accident, murder, or ravaging disease. They are also closely associated with the Mori or the Fates, who measure a man's the length of a man's life. So they're connected, you know, like sort of related, I suppose, on like a family tree. And then they're also related to Moros or Doom, who derive who drives men towards inevitable destruction. Um, however, unlike other sort of personifications, the carriers have no direct power over the life of men. 
they they can't really unlike the morai who actually measure and then cut the length of a man's life they actually they well they personify violent death they don't actually control it in any way the land of the dead or hades consists of three parts so there's elysium which is where achilles goes in most contemporary versions of the myth he goes to elysium which is the final resting place of the souls of heroes and virtuous men the ancients often distinguish two elysian realms so there's the isle of the blessed and then the lethean fields of hades so the first the isles of the blessed are also known as the white island it was an afterlife realm reserved for heroes um, and it was an island paradise located in the far western stream of the river oceanus and then was either ruled by the titan king Cronos, which confused me a little bit but anyway or, or Radamanthes, son of Zeus, which makes more sense. That's more what I've heard. Most interpretations I know of, the Titan King Kronos is imprisoned. Yeah, he's imprisoned with all the other Titans. Yeah. But like I said, myths have multiple roots. So, um, The second Elysium area uh, was an underworld realm separated from the gloom of Hades by the River Leith. It, um, its pleasant fields were promised as an afterlife afterlife to the initiates of the mysteries who live virtuous lives so the mysteries were like a like they were like a pseudo cult within different within the worship of different gods so the main one i know about is the illusion mysteries i think with demeter so they would be associated with like sort of these rituals that take place during festivals for specific gods that only like members of this of these pseudo cults could take take part in um so there was a conception that there was a special place in the elysian fields for people who were part of that the second realm of the land of the dead is tartarus tartarus also has two interpretations so one it is the great pit beneath the earth in the oldest of greek cosmogonies so the universe was envisaged as a great great sphere or egg-shaped void I love the idea that it's egg-shaped. Yeah, that's very specific and weird. Um, So there's a solid dome of the sky forming the upper half, and then the inverse of the dome is uh, in the lower half is Tartarus. So the flat horizon. um, By the way, this is where you learn that ancient Greeks were flat earthers. So the flat horizontal disk of the earth divided the interior of the cosmic cosmic sphere into two halves so the homes of men and gods above and the gloomy storm-dragged prison of the titans below so that's how they originally envisioned the world flat disc and then sky sort of domed above and tartarus domed below yeah it makes sense i guess yeah um and then the land of the dead was originally quite distinct from the pit of tartarus so the land of the dead was located at either end of the earth beyond um the oceans and the setting places of the sun or it was set in the hollow depths of the Earth's belly. Whereas Tartarus, on the other hand, descended as far beneath the deepest recesses of the flat Earth as the sky rose above the Earth. So originally they weren't the same thing. Tartarus was secured with a surrounding wall of bronze set with a pair of gates, which were guard- guarded by the hundred-handed giants. That's a lot of hands. That is a lot of hands. And there's three of them, so it's actually 300 hands. How do you keep track of that many hands? <laughs> 
Later, classical writers reimagined Tartarus as the Dungeon of the Damned, which is the most common understanding of it now. It's a region in Hades where the souls of wicked men were condemned by the judges of the dead to a period of enforced purgatory or for the truly irredeemable eternal damnation. So, like, characters like uh, Tantalus and Sisyphus. Do you know these guys, Morgan? Uh, the names ring a bell. Okay, so Sisyphus, um, for what I can't remember what his crime was in life, but whatever crime was, it was bad enough to offend the gods that he was tasked with rolling a giant boulder up a hill every day. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They would roll back down. Um, same with Tantalus, similar with Tantalus. Tantalus was cursed to, I think he's like, He'd be, like, positioned under a tree with hanging fruit and then there'd be, like, a water also near him or sometimes I think he's in the water. But basically whenever he reached up to grab a piece of fruit, the fruit would disappear or the branch would recede. Um, and whenever he went to have a drink of water, uh, the water level would go down. So that way he could never drink or eat and he was cursed with basically eternal hunger and thirst and then constantly taunted. What's his name again? Tantalus. Where potentially the word tantalizing comes from. Yes. Interesting. Yes. So the idea, yeah. So he, the thing that he wants is just out of his reach yeah. always. And and he, he yearns for it, but he can't have it. Poetic. So that's what Tartarus, that's who Tartarus sort of holds in contemporary imagination, those sort of characters. I think there's also a guy who, I can't remember who it was, but um, he died <laughs> That he tricked death into letting him go, like, because he was like, I, I want to be, like, I don't want to die. So he tricked <laughs> death into letting him go back to, oh, oh he tricked Hades. He, t- he tricked someone to letting him go back to Earth. And then and he was like, I'll come right back. And then he didn't. <laughs> when he didn't, they were like, okay, that's really bad. So then he got thrown in Tartarus <laughs> for being that dude who was just like, oh, I'll come back. And then he just walks off whistling as soon as he gets love it. <laughs> You shouldn't get in trouble. It's like, all right, yeah, it'd be like, all right, fair game. You tried, but like, you have to come back now. And then the third area, um, although this one's a bit, a bit in contention. So there's the fields of asphodel. So the fields of asphodel or the asphodel meadows, and I, I hope I'm saying that correctly, are generally thought to be the place where ordinary souls wander after death, and they're basically uh, interpreted as. Blank grey wraiths that just wander around in these meadows of white flowers forever, not knowing who they are or what they're doing or who that person is. However, it's not the fields of Asphodel are not a conception of the underworld that are found in Homer's work. They tend to be added later. So those are the three areas. And then the underworld is then watered by the streams of five rivers as well. And you might know some of these. You might know the sticks. Yep. So the Styx circles the underworld seven times, and it's the river of hatred and unbreakable oaths. So the the gods in Greek mythology often swear upon the river Styx to bind oaths. So, you know, if you want a con, if you want to get a contract with Zeus, and to be binding, you make him swear upon the river Styx. But you also put it in writing. Yeah, so read the contract funny. very carefully. Um, <laughs> all the uh, yeah, all the fine print. You need to cover every base with the gods. Yeah. Um, they wily. And then the there's the Archeron, so that's the river of sorrow and pain. There's the Coctus, the river of lamentation and wailing. The uh, this one's going to be a bit rough. The Pelegathon. Sorry, uh, my Greek's not that good. The river of fire, and then there's the Leith, the river of ob- 
oblivion and forgetfulness out of which the dead souls are obliged to drink so that they can forget their earthly lives in preparation for possible reincarnation. None of these rivers sound fun. Like none of these rivers sound like, oh, let's go, let's go to the river for the weekend. Let's have a swim. Let's take a dip. Yeah, it's not like so. There are some conceptions of the afterlife in which the afterlife is nice or as, is as nice or nicer than our world. Not Greek mythology. Well, the like, afterlife even in, like the is nice, gray yeah, like the black. nice bits. It was like you got to be a hero, so you had to have done shit things in life. Yeah. To get to the good bit. And then, like, the average bit is grey. And then it's all surrounded with all this shit rivers anyway. So it's like, what's the point? Yeah, to get to the good part, you have to have done amazing things in life. But they don't necessarily have to be good. Yeah. <laughs> they don't have to benefit your community in yeah, any it's way. Yeah, wild. Because if you're bad, you go to the Tartarus. But if you're a hero, who we know, we established in the first part, had to do terrible things to become well, a hero, you get to be the good. Is, the the Yeah, I mean, yeah, for a hero, you just have to be, you have to, yeah, you have to reach that level of immortality that you are remembered for generations, you have to achieve personal glory, and how you do that doesn't really matter. For Tartarus, it's more like you go there if you've severely offended the gods, which is more important than doing good or bad things. If you've offended the gods, that's, that's, you're done. offend the gods. Um, so the spirit of Achilles um, also features in the Odyssey. So Odysseus has been instructed to consult the dead oracle Tiresias about his long journey home um, by calling the dead from the edge of the fields of Asphodel by offering libations and slaughtered animals so they will be drawn by the blood to drink. Um, after Tiresias has given his advice and Odysseus has listed the billion other spirits he recognizes, trust me, it goes on for pages, eventually um, Achilles also comes forward. And in Dr. Emily Wilson's translation, which I'm about to read, Patroclus is with him. So his encounter with Odysseus's encounter with the spirit of Achilles goes like this. So then came the spirits of Achilles and Patroclus and of Antilochus and Ajax, who was the handsomest and had the best physique of all the Greeks next to only Achilles the sprinter. And Achilles recognized me and spoke in tears. My lord Odysseus, you fox, what will you think of next? How could you bear to come down to Hades? None dead people live here, the shades of poor exhausted mortals. I said, Achilles, greatest of Greek heroes, I came down here to meet Tiresias in case he had advice for my return to rocky Ithaca. I have not even returned to Greece, my homeland. I have had bad luck. But no one's luck was ever better than yours, nor ever will be. In your life, we Greeks respected you as we do gods. And now that you are here, you have great power among the dead. Achilles, you should not be bitter at your death. But he replied, Odysseus, you must not comfort me for death. I would prefer to be a workman hired by a poor man on a peasant farm than rule as king of all the dead. That sort of tells you what the underworld's like, is that Achilles was like, I'd honestly rather work on a farm than be dead. Anywhere but here. Yeah. This is not my vibe. I want to go back. It's very sad. There's only sad people. So yeah, um, in this, in the Odyssey, in the most translations of the Odyssey, he is not in Elysium because that was a concept that didn't really exist then. Uh, he is just chilling with the other dead, and he's like, "This is depressing as fuck." He's like, "This is beneath me." This he's like, "This is this is sad. Aren't we sad? Aren't you sad?" <laughs> he's like, "Where's the interior decoration? Why is it all gray?" Drink from that river, the forgetfulness one. That's what yeah. he needs. A nice long drink from there. Um, there is also a concept of reincarnation that was introduced later in that um, if you one passage three times 
to uh, basically the the our version of Elysium. So like if you reincarnated and then if you were one three passage three times to like the the lower level Elysium, so they tiered it so that there was the Isle of the Blessed and then there was the other one below it. So like if you won three passage three times to the first one, then on your fourth death you could go live with the heroes in in the good place. It's like a loyalty program. Yeah, I get yeah. you. Ah, the good place. I'll add that to my recommendations because actually that sort of fits in. Yeah, it does. I see that. So now we're on to a bit about what the philosophy of the story is. Um, inherently, it is a love story version of the Iliad, even though it does deal heavily in war and attachment to glory. It is primarily the love story of Achilles and Patroclus and how they navigate, you know, being in love, but also being having duties to society and their kingdoms and their parents and um, the gods and trying to navigate that, but also like remain together, you know, and then, you know, they both die, which is not ideal but it is a very good story <laughs> it also the, there's also obviously the philosophy of hubris um, as most greek heroes experience if you're dealing with the story of achilles you can't get away from hubris he is basically the poster child of it do you know what hubris is by the way <laughs> like the concept of hubris yeah yeah yeah. i'm familiar with the concept yeah, yeah, of hubris right. yeah, yeah. um for those of you who don't know hubris is basically the ancient greek equivalent of great arrogance it's um it's so it's having so much arrogance that you basically go out and challenge the gods and then you are struck down. Yeah, it's arrogance that leads to your inevitable downfall. Like Exactly, yeah. yeah. So um, in ancient Greek thought, that was often because you would be led to challenge the gods and then they'd put you back in your place. So Achilles is basically the poster child for hubris because he's like, I'm not going to fight your war because you took my slave girl away. And then lots of people die. And then his best friend or lover dies and he's like well fuck what have i done (laughs) that didn't go as planned it's also about finding the human in the hero and the goodness in the ordinary so it really reps patroclus as the beating heart of the story and also of achilles who has almost zero impulse control um and temper he's 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 a bit um sensitive very emotionally volatile so it's just like the angel on his shoulder is patroclus yeah but it's, yeah, and, it, and it's about, like, he brings, because he's, you know, the gods get to do whatever they fuck they want because they're gods. And Achilles is part god. So it's sort of like, it's sort of showing Patroclus as the person who can bring out the humanity within someone who is so inclined to give in to his divine nature because he has it and other people don't. Um, and then, you know, the goodness in the ordinary. So Patroclus really stands for the life that, that Achilles could have had which is that he could have he could have left the war, they could have gone home and he could have grown old and had kids and all of that stuff. I mean, he would have done that because it was expected, but he could have lived with Patroclus a really long time and, and it could have been fine, but he wouldn't have been remembered. While the choice that Achilles makes is that he chooses glory and immortality and memory over his personal relationship with Patroclus and the lives of his men, it the story really says, you know, but consider what good there is in the ordinary. You know, was Achilles right for making this decision? Um, and then then it leaves all the people who've read it to go on fanfiction.net or archive our own and write stories where he chooses to make that choice <laughs> because they're all sad. And it also deals in the tragedy and also the unfortunate trope of 
queer of tragic queer romance ending in death. But it also can't really be blamed for that because the story is part of a canon of ancient myth. And while that trope is unfortunate and very prevalent, especially in contemporary times, and we should be doing better, we can't really blame this book because it's based on something that is from thousands of years ago. Um, and, and it was always going to happen. In like she's not writing a revisionist story where they both live. She's still writing based on the myth. And in the myth, they die. So it was always going to happen. So you can't really blame it for that. Yeah, but it no. is, it's unfortunate that we find that trope in so many other places where it doesn't need to be there. I agree. I think it, it serves the story here. It doesn't always do that. Yeah. Um, and with that, we've actually come to the end of everything I had to say about the song of Achilles. Um, I've hope you've enjoyed it, especially my rambles about Greek myth. Most of that was from memory, so forgive me if I'm a bit, um, if some of it's not. I think you did good. I was impressed. Yeah. So for this week, I have a couple of recommendations. As I mentioned earlier, by a slip of the tongue, and is not on my list, but The Good Place, if you're looking for something that deals with an interesting conception of the afterlife, The Good Place on Netflix is very interesting. And it sort of deals with that, you know, the idea of a tiered model of, uh, well, it deals with a point system. Yeah, of, it has the whole point system. And yeah. And like, yeah, that you can have good points. I think that like, I think they get into that a bit later on in the series, like yeah. the whole idea of like how you get to The Good Place and stuff. But it's there. And like, yeah, and yeah, it's it's an interesting link from this episode to go into that. Also, it's a great show; it's so enjoyable. Um, so that's something if you're looking for something to watch and you haven't watched it already. Um, in terms of stories that tie into this one, and so contemporary novels that also look at the Trojan War but from different viewpoints, uh, there's *The Silence of the Girls* by Pat Barker which tells the story of the Greek women in the Iliad, so particularly Briseis, which is Achilles' slave girl. There's A Thousand Ships by Natalie Hines. Actually, Natalie Hines has a lot of really good Greek mythology interpretation stories. But A Thousand Ships um, tells the story of the women of the Trojan War from an all-female perspective. So you get you get Hecuba, which is the queen of Troy. You get, I think you get some of Cassandra. You get... You might get some of Briseis, but she it's its basically all the women who have in many ways been ignored in this story. That She brings them all to light and gives them a moment to sort of shine. And it's a great book. Um, there's The Odyssey, translated by Emily Wilson, which I've read from here today, which is the story of Odysseus's long journey home. Uh, this version is the first translated by a woman and challenges some of the previous interpretations of the poem, which were all done by men. Similarly, there's the Penelopead by Margaret Atwood, which is the story of the Odyssey told from the perspective of Penelope, Odysseus's wife who's left home in Ithaca for a, for a very long time because obviously there's the 10 years of the Trojan War and then it's like, I don't know, seven years for him to get home. And when he does, he slaughters all the men in her hall and also her maids. <laughs> so, Damn. Yeah, so that's all my recommendations. Uh, Morgan, do you have anything to recommend? Related or not? Um, no, I just, I'm very interested in Greek uh, mythology at the moment because I'm playing Assassin's Creed Odyssey, but yeah. different time. But, you know, if you want to get into a world or explore the world a bit more, definitely worth mentioning or checking out. Yeah, a good a good thing to sort of get you into it and a great game. Also, I've just remembered um, Heroes by Stephen Fry and 
his other one on Greek myths are also really good introductions to Greek mythology and very witty and enjoyable. But I totally forgot that I'd even read them up until just now. <laughs> but uh, but great books. Um, and his next one, I think, is actually probably going to be about Troy, so worth, worth looking into. Um, so to finish this episode, I'd just like to say that if you want to be the face that launched a thousand listers, as Helen was the face that launched a thousand ships, please rate, review, and subscribe. Do it. Do it, please. Please. Thank you. And thank you for listening. We'll be back. See you later. Bye. This has been a Spiky Trap Radio production. For more Spiky Trap Radio content, please head to spikytrap.com.